Hello and welcome to The Thing About Golf, the podcast series from Golf Australia magazine that explores the many and varied reasons people get hooked on this ridiculous game. My name's Rod Murray. Good to have your company as we continue our quest. Special welcome if you're a first-time listener and a big welcome back if you've been with us before. Now, as regular listeners know, we've had our fair share of professionals on the podcast over the last year and a bit, from Kari Webb, Peter Lonard, Peter Fowler, Scott Hand, Greg Chalmers, and many more. We all think of golf as a singular pursuit, but the truth about the game at the top level is that it's actually a weird hybrid of both solo performance and team play. I speak, of course, of the caddy, perhaps the most unique character in all of sport. To some, caddies are just carriers of the equipment, and while it's true that the caddy never actually hits a shot, to suggest that their input is no more than as physical assistant is both a narrow view and one that is demonstrably wrong. After all, if caddies didn't do much, why would the top pros pay them so well? On this episode, we're going to meet a man who has seen some of the very best golf played by some of the game's very best players. Dean Hurden is an Australian and a former professional who now lives in South Korea. His caddying resume includes 51 victories, two of them at the US Women's Open. As you'll hear, though, Dean is much, much more than just a bag carrier. He's thoughtful about the game and has a genuine passion for promoting it in all its forms. And just a heads up, he also reveals the secret to the success of Korea's women golfers. I hope you enjoy my chat with Dean Hurden. And as we do, we open the conversation by saying, thank you, Dean Hurden. We really appreciate you taking the time to chat. thing about golf is quite the commitment, so it's been very good of you to say yes, mate. Looking forward to our catch-up today. Thanks, Rod. I've, been, I've, I've listened to the show quite often, so uh, I was absolutely honoured when you um, invited me to come on and... Uh, uh, ecstatic, yeah. That tells us two things, Dean. One, you must be a somebody in golf, and two, you've got too much time on your hands, so you need to do something about that, my friend, because they think, uh, they do go for I a while. Now, obviously, I, you're not I a household every, I think everybody mate. Everybody has. So, yeah, well, at the moment, everybody does do. We'll come to that in a minute, and I'll, I'll get you to update us on what the go is in Korea. But I like to get into the sort of topic of the show early if we can. So, the jumping off point for the show, as you know, is the thing about golf. And so, I like to pose the question this way I'd like you to finish this sentence for me. The thing about golf is everything. Um, the thing about golf is uh, it's the closest relationship to life. I feel, and um, it's just a hell of a sport to play. Mm-hmm. Those who don't play golf wouldn't understand that at all, and I suspect that most listeners to this podcast will understand that in some way. Why do you reckon some people get golf and get hooked on the game the way we have, and why do you think some don't? Mental side of it, I think um, anybody who's in the high level of sports knows that uh, you know seventy percent of it is mental, and um, golf seems to go to another level in the mental side of it. I feel um, Peter Thompson made the famous comment that it's seventy percent mental, you know, thirty percent physical. But when your brain's operating the physical side of it, I guess it's a hundred percent. But uh, golf goes deep. Golf goes deeper than other sports. I feel um, I find that uh, anybody that's uh, it teaches you patience, I think, the other thing too. Um, even looking at a player that swings at a golf club, you can tell, you know, okay, basically when they're first starting, they haven't got the ability. But, you know, as they progress, they're picking up things all the time and they're learning things all the time. But I think uh, a player who really just tries to smash the ball as hard as they can and, um, and not really think about what the, you know, placement of the ball down the fairway and, 
you know, getting the ball on the green and less amount of shots as possible, um, you know, that, you know, they're not, they don't, they, they don't end up grasping the sport. Mm-hmm. They just keep, they keep, they just keep teeing it up and, <laughs> and, and not really thinking and, and, uh, probably doing it for social reasons too, you know, but, uh, the, the, the people who get into the mental side of it, I think, and, you know, realize that, you know, the decisions they made, uh, by being aggressive at a flag and not being aggressive, uh, um, being smart, you know, dick, you know, uh, getting the ball around the golf course, basically at the lowest score possible, you know, and uh, that's I find they're, they're they're the smart ones who really get hooked onto the sport quickly, yeah. And uh, they see they see they see the little particles that that uh, um, that, that, that formulate the game. So, some people hit the ball around the place. Some people play golf, and they are two different things, yeah. aren't they? One is uh, it's very much a game of strategy and placement and whatnot. Nobody says, Dean, when they're asked at a, at the age of five or ten or fifteen. Uh, what do you want to do with your life? I want to be a caddy. That doesn't happen. You come to golf first. That's the path. And then you find your way to caddying. What was your path to being a caddy? You've caddied for some of the very best players that we've seen in the last 20 years, particularly in the women's game. How did you end up there? Where did it start for you? What was your introduction to golf? Uh, Dad, um, first of all, I grew up in a small country town, a place called Beckham, uh, which is, uh, for people who are familiar, it's probably about a two and a half hour drive from Canberra. It's between Sydney and Melbourne uh, here in Australia, and uh, it's a small country town, very, very small, only about two, 200 people population. Dad had the pub there, but we had a big big farming community um, anyway, so I grew up with sports, cricket. You know, cricket was a big game for me. So at 12 years of age, Dad, Dad invited me down to the local chicken run, uh, which was on a Tuesday evening afternoon where you know people got together and just had a quick nine-hole uh, competition and you know, the first prize was winning a chicken, you know, <laughs> so um, he invited me along and uh, I thought, this is a nice game. I'm, you know, the relationship between cricket and golf, I think, is quite close uh, mm-hmm. when you're, you're batting in cricket. Um, so I had a bit of hand-eye coordination there and um, I really enjoyed the game. I got hooked on it straight away. Um, the first round, I think it was 55 or something I shot. And, um, you know, I just thought, oh, okay, and I hit, a, you know, probably two or three good shots and I thought, oh, that felt so good. And then after that, I just kept playing and playing and playing and, um, and uh, basically, uh, I got my handicap down uh, quite quickly. I joined the club and uh, at, at a golf club called Ardlethan, Ardlethan Golf Club, which is a sand nine-hole sand green course. And, um, and for those people who aren't familiar with sand green courses, you, you're basically uh, it's a volunteer golf course. All the members are in there doing working bees and um, volunteering their time to cut the fairways and and the sand greens are just a, a probably a, a green that's probably 15 meters wide circular obviously and um just just um, you put oil on the sand to, to make it smooth and and uh it uh it's an interesting game it's a game along the ground not so much in the air you've got to allow for the bounce and the run so you don't get but anyway you don't uh, see a lot of lob wedges once you get sort of an hour and a half two hours outside the metropolitan area do you <laughs> they don't no, sell very well <laughs> Yeah, Scotland's got the link style golf, and uh, Australia's got that uh, rough country yeah. uh, style golf, and which is quite similar sometimes because you see the ball running all the time. But yeah. uh, getting back on track, uh, but the um, where I started was and Ron Luxton uh, was a uh, still is a, an Australian PGA professional, and a, a wonderful teacher. He used to come out to drive his station wagon out from Sydney uh, to all the country golf courses that didn't have a club pro. So, um, and he was able to kind of watch young players coming through and, um, you know, basically sell a bit of equipment while he was there and uh, just made it accessible for us to, as golfers, uh, to, you know, get a lesson and, and, and be able to buy a couple of, you know, set of clubs here and there off him. 
but Ron was a, a you know wonderful teacher, and he picked up on on what I had, I guess, and um, he said you should you should really go to Sydney and join one of the golf courses there to to play pennants and uh, representative stuff. And anyway, so I I decided, oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, maybe I'll give, I'll, give, I'll give it some thought. And then six months later, um, I was playing a pro am at Griffith. And uh, got to play with two professionals in our group, and one was uh, Ross Herbert, and the other one was Gary Tozer. And uh, Ross, as we all know, uh, was a, a head coach of the um, of the AIS for many, many years, and God bless him, he's passed away now. But um, Gary, um, both Ross and Gary mentioned to me, you, know, you should you should go to Sydney. You've got something there. So um, Gary was able to introduce me to uh, Ride Parramatta Golf Club in Sydney, and. Um, then I decided uh, at the age of 17, I'll jump in my car and go to Sydney. I'll get stuck into this. And then um, basically from 17 to 19, I had the privilege of meeting a gentleman called Frank Phillips, and two-time Australian Open champion. And uh, Frank was the head pro at Ride Paramedic, which which was a luxury for me because you've got now you've got a, a great former tour pro who's the head professional. And so as I was uh, practicing and playing and around right parameter and that uh, Frank was always there to, to watch me and mentor me and uh, but uh, there was a bit of a glitch because Frank had to leave um, and then I decided to leave I, I, I switched across to Concord Golf Club and so uh, I got to play a lot of golf at Concord and um, I, I decided that I needed an income but I also wanted to stay in golf I wanted to practice hard I wanted to be a tour pro I had this hunger to be a tour pro and Greg Norman was doing what he was and and, and he inspired so many of us, and um, it was, he was just so wonderful to watch, Norman, the way he played back in the 80s, and he inspired a lot of players, and so therefore I was on that I was on that trip, you know, watching Norman doing what he does, and he, um, I didn't decide to, Bruce, uh, to do the uh, traineeship, I wanted to become a golf professional, and to do the traineeship, and um to go through that system, you've got two choices in Australia. You come directly if you win, if you're a top amateur player, then you you uh, you can you can turn professional straight away. But, but uh, back in those days, uh, you had two choices: you could do the traineeship or or straight in. But I, I wasn't a good enough amateur player. I was still only off about a three, two or three handicap back then. And I thought I'll give it a shot because I thought the harder you work, the better you get. And um, I'm a hard worker, so I thought I'd give it a shot and. Um, I joined up with the PGA and uh, went through the whole system for three or four years. And um, in I think in 86, I, uh, I decided to go out on tour. That's basically it. And I, I became a, a tour professional for three or four years, but, you know, not not successful at all. Won a few pro-ams. Um, that's about it. It's hard, isn't it? It's, it's harder than people realise. People don't realise how good you've got to be to play in the leagues with blokes you've never heard of how good you go to some of those mini tours in the states and some of those places around the UK. You'll find guys who play unbelievable golf. You can't believe how good they are, and yet they're struggling to get to the big show because it's just you've got it's, to be that good. It's such a financial grind, right? Um, it's uh, a lot of people wouldn't realise it's uh, now. Now I'm guessing probably about four grand a week to be on tour, four or five. You know, uh, back then it was three. Two, three to play the four rounders to play the big tournaments. You know, uh, mm-hmm. hotel expenses, caddy, air ticket. You know, and you haven't eaten yet. And you so, can't really skimp, can you, Dean? Because you do yourself a disservice if you sleep in your car for the week. You save, let's say, six hundred bucks, but mm. you do your body not great. <laughs> it's not great for your no. body, and are you going to be able to swing the club properly if you do that? So everything's got to be weighed up, doesn't it? It really is a it's a relentless pressure had, if you want to play. 
had a wonderful conversation with Jack Newton one time, and Jack would probably would remember this, but it was, you know, it, I was in about 1980, mid-80s or something, but Jack taught a lot of us young, inspiring professionals in Sydney at the time that, you know, you, you eat hamburgers, you play like a hamburger. <laughs> that was his famous famous comment. And uh, Jack uh, installed in us that, you know, look you know look after yourself when you're on tour. Um, you know, eat well. No need to go over the top, but just, you know, don't, you know, make sure you get a good night's sleep in a hotel, decent hotel. And, and uh, you, as, as I said, you've got to look after the body. Did anybody see the irony yeah. of that coming from Jack? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> perhaps yeah. Do, do as good. I say, not as I do, perhaps some, in some cases there with Jack. What a player yeah. he was. What a golden era of professional golf here in Australia, Dean, that you were a part of. In some ways, oh. maybe not a surprise that you didn't make it. That might have been one of Australia's hottest periods of the play. We watched some of those fantastic videos that Rob Williamson puts up on on Twitter of tournaments from the eighties and nineties. It is just a, it's a parade of fantastic golfers that we had here, wasn't it? All inspired by the shark, I'd say. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, the, the shark was wonderful. I, I, I constantly get asked this question. You know, you know. You know, Norman. You know this, 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 and that, and and, and I said, yeah, but Greg, Greg was absolutely wonderful to Australian golf because he made the trip four or five times a year to come to Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, or to, sorry, to play four or five tournaments a season, and that, that's what inspired us. There's no doubt about it in my mind. I mean, um, you know, a lot of a lot of people used to say, oh yeah, but he lives in America, blah blah blah. But the guy made the effort of coming out to play four or five events, and it was absolutely fantastic for us. You know, it was it was it was all inspiring. You couldn't live here and be a professional golfer. There wasn't enough golf to play to make a living doing just that. And, you know, if you want to be the best, you've got to go and play where the best are. So uh, those criticisms always just seem to be to, to Almost to a person. I, I had a chat with Brad Hughes the other day. We're going to have him on the show mm-hmm. in the not-too-distant future. Same thing for him. Greg Norman changed his life just by being Greg Norman and swinging that golf club and hitting that ball, Brad Hughes's the trajectory of his life changed because of Greg Norman. Yeah. And there's plenty, there's plenty of other Australians who can, who golfers who will tell you the same thing, both professional and not professional. People who came to the exactly. game because of, of what Norman did, and that you can disagree with him personally about all sorts of stuff, and you can wonder what he's up to these days, posting pictures of himself on Instagram and whatnot. You can't deny the contribution that he made to the game in this country and globally. Absolutely wonderful. Uh, the, the players you talk about in the eighties, right? Uh, you know, and we, we, I got to, uh, the luxury I got was to, to tra- travel with these guys. And um, actually, you mentioned Brad Hughes a minute ago. To Hugo, I played my first four-round tournament with and down to the Tassie Open. And, and um, I, I looked at Brad Hughes and I'm going, well, <laughs> this is a reminder I may not make it to this game. Uh, Brad was an absolute ball striker too. Yeah, so, special uh, talent. Really. Uh, but the crop coming, th- the crop coming through, um, and, you know, the, you know, Craig Parry's, Peter O'Malley's, um, Craig Arnold. Warren was a great, great, yep. great young player too, you know. And, and um, there was uh, the Stephen Leanies. Um, we, we had a we had a really good crop of players, and they were all hungry. I mean, they all we've got to go. To, we're heading off to the European tour first, and then we're going to go across to the US and yep. and uh, you know take on the world because of course of one guy, the shark. Yeah, he, he did it for us. Yeah, very much so, very much so. And Dean, what was it? What was it actually like though? At, at what point? And it must be one of life's most difficult decisions if you're a golfer at what point did you realize or did it did it make itself known to you that you weren't going to make it playing for a living was it sudden or did I, it take some time before? no i i was a big worker i mean i, I, I practiced a lot on it i was a driving range nut you know and um uh, often too often you know it was it was you know i'd miss a cut by five or six shots or something and then uh, saturday morning i'd be out there at 7 a.m whacking balls on the 
on the driving range, you know, trying to work out something or constantly, you know. Um, it, it, the game got to me at the end, you know, it really did. And um, it got to the point where, um, you know, you, you start to get so negative on, your, negative on yourself, you know, and you're, still, you're so hard on yourself, you know. You're mentally bashing yourself up all the time. And uh, it, it, uh, I guess it gets to you after a while. And um, I started, you know, getting irate with myself on the golf course because things weren't working out and uh, the feedback wasn't coming back to me. And I just, I, what I needed was a break away from it, you know, which I didn't take. And it, it, your answer is it came to me gradually, but I think the where it hit me between the eyes, I played, I got invited to a little small tournament up in, uh, up in Japan, Hokkaido. And it was just a, you know, a small, um, small event, uh, but, you know, decent prize money. And like, wow, you know, I was, I was already in Korea doing the Asian tour at the time and I flew across and played in it. I finished second in the event, but I wasn't happy. I mean, I walked off the golf course and I'm still miserable, you know, and I thought to myself, oh, mate, you know, I, now that I think back on it, I just thought, well, the game obviously got to me at the end, you know. <laughs> what, what am I doing? So, madness. <laughs> yeah, and I, thought, um, and I decided I'm, I'm going to have a break away from this, and, and I decided to stop. Um, I was due to play the New South Wales Open down at, uh, it was, I think it was played in Bathurst at the time, the, 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 um, at one time, I think, um, Kenny Trimble might have won it, I'm not sure, but at New South Wales Open there once. So anyway, so I decided that it wasn't working out. It just, it just, uh, I'm, I'm not going to play on it, you know. And uh, I looked at the bank balance, and I swear to God, <laughs> I, mean, I, got, I don't know. I didn't have enough money to get down there in the first place. Really. But uh, I, I just realized uh, I need to break away from this. This is driving me nuts. The bank balance was minus, um, you know. I just it's, The pressure was immense, you know, and it was more – yeah, financial pressure. Now I'm 26. I was 26 years of age at the time now. And uh, I realized it's financially this is this is going nowhere for me. And um, and then I just decided to step away from it. Got into other areas of the game. Yeah. So I decided to – I wanted to try. It's a cruel game, isn't it, Dean? Like, it really doesn't play favorites. And it is, it's a very, very hard taskmaster. I mean, golf can really beat you down and just not give you a break. Um Again, and I think this is the part where, uh, you know, your mental strength is what's needed in the game. Either either be really stupid or be really <laughs> smart and mentally strong. Um, I, you, you look at it, uh, it's um, – I just find that um, you, constant positiveness all the time is the way to go. And um, um, I think Roger Davis was a, a, one of Australia's uh, famous old players back in the, back in the 70s and 80s, uh, Roger Davis. Very – Roger was – you know, he was so funny like, to, to, to walk around or, you know, later on I got the caddy a few times and I was in the same group as him and, and it was quite quite funny. But, you know, you, you know, there was an instance there where uh, I watched him hit a shot and it was just a, a, a horrendous shot. You know, he kind of, you know, the, the iron got stuck behind the ball and, you know, it only went, only went you know, uh, 80% of the distance it's supposed to go. And uh, anyway, he kind of looks across the caddy and goes, you know, you sure that was the right club? You know, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but this Roger had this way of keeping himself positive, and okay, yeah, he miss hit the shot, but he, you know, it wasn't no, his fault. No, it wasn't a miss hit. It was no. Obviously, the wrong club. That's right. One, one of the great you tricks know. of the game, isn't it? Yeah, you, you got to stay. You got to stay, mm. and it's so positive out there. You can't, can't be, you can't be bashing your head. You know, going, oh, why did I do this? Why did I do that? I must be doing something wrong. Uh, but you, if you keep constantly telling yourself, no, I'm fine. It's just you know. Just stay super positive. Yeah. I think Ian Baker Finch said it best. I heard him say it one day. He said, don't beat yourself up on the golf course. That's everybody else's job. Be kind to yourself because others won't be. 
And I think that's probably very true, particularly for the top players. You, know, you look at somebody like Rory or Tiger or Norman in his day, they shoot 73, it might not be horrendous. They get roasted in the press the next day. We all give it to them. And it's, uh, you know, which is just, I mean, it's, it comes with the gig. They also get the big bucks. So that's how it works. And they all understand that. But uh, yeah, it's uh, be kind to yourself because uh, nobody else will. How does that then go? For a lot of people in that position, Dean, golf just simply stops being a part of their life. It's burnt them so badly, hurt them so much, they walk away and they never engage with the game again. You didn't do that. Why not? Um, passion, loved it. You know, I knew there was even uh, still after everything it had done yeah. to you. Yeah, uh, back then I decided there was a back in the day, uh, Rod. There was IMG and Advantage. With, there were two management companies, and um, a lot of the players, you know, were kind of uh, if you're a very very good player, uh, IMG signed you up or Advantage signed you up. There were only two management companies going at the time. So I thought, oh, I'm a bit of an idea. I've got some connections in Japan. Um, you know, thanks thanks to actually one of the members at the Concord Golf Club, Rick Newnham. Um, he started ESP uh, Sports Promotion Company, in the, in, which I was a part of at one stage. And then, um, anyway, uh, I've, I've managed to gather up a, quite a few um, uh, Japanese contacts and, and when I made few few trips to Japan, and, uh, and I thought I'll, I'll try and start a management company just to get some young Aussies. Uh, this connection between Australia and Japan going to get some young Aussies. And Japan was a closed tour back in, uh, right up until 1990, and it opened its gates in 91, I think it was 91 or 92. And um, I thought, well, that probably it's a nice opportunity for Aussies to come in and um, and start playing. That tour instead of going straight to Europe, or you know, as they, the, the normal the norm was to go to Europe, and then if you were any good, you went on to uh, you went on to the PGA tour. But anyway, I thought I'd start this avenue up, and uh, I had some success with three or four players: Craig Warren, Anthony Gilligan, Shane Robinson, and uh, Richard Backwell. And so um, I had some good success in three of them, three out of the four, and, and uh, Craig actually went on to win an event. But uh, sadly enough, the expenses in Japan were way too much for me. Uh, having an office in Tokyo, which I had to have. Um, the JPGA uh, insisted that I had an office, so um, it was really hard. So I decided, uh, um, again, my bank balance was dwindling, and um, after four years I gave it. I gave that away um, and decided and to uh, look at caddying. I was doing a little bit of caddying for Craig Warren, and Craig said to me, he said, you know, you're really good as a caddy, so and I thought, oh, great. So when I stopped the business, you know, basically uh, – um, I got stuck into caddying, uh, and I, I, I worked. I worked for Craig uh, for one year, um, and he was a big help to me because financially now I got ahead, and um, he had a decent season. And um, one thing led to another, and, um, and I was very, very close friends with Craig, and still am. Uh, but we were, we played the tour together. So, but after a season, it's hard. It's always hard to caddy for your friend. Yeah, I would think. Um, yeah. It, it's very hard to express fully uh, because you, you see another side of your friend on the golf course too, because they're you know they're in the uh, the work mode, you know, and uh, so it's not it's not fun and games and having a having a few drinks or going out to a restaurant. Really, it's 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 business out there. So um, and things can get heated, and so um, but with Craig's case, he never was. He never you know he, he was never like that on the golf course. Did you enjoy and, um, it straight but, away? Did you enjoy that role? Because it's a, for some people, they would think of that as a come down. You've been a player, now you're a caddy. In some people's minds, correct. you'd be moving down the pecking order. Did you ever feel that? I did. Yeah, I did. And I thought, no, but again, it, it, it's just uh, this passion I had for the game. I, I wanted to be, 
a part of it. And um, the big thing, Rod, was I still had a lot of competition in myself. You know, like, I mean, I walked away from the game at 26 and I still had this bit of fire in my stomach that, you know, oh, I love the competition. It's so nice out here, you know, and, and <laughs> I love being on a golf course, walking around on the grass, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's a simple thing in life, but uh, often uh, overlooked, I think, uh, being able to just walk out, walk around on grass and, and such a beautiful view every day. It's not a bad office, is so, it? <laughs> no, nah, it's not a bad office at all. But the thing was that, uh, yeah, Craig and I finished. We, we split. At the end of the year, we decided. And I think it was partly uh, he, he just said, look, mate, I'm sick of you. <laughs> 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 but, <laughs> so and I, I didn't want the friendship to break up. And uh, so we both agreed. And uh, my biggest turnaround then was to get involved with the uh, the Japanese players in Japan. And that was the big – that was the re- – that's when I realised, okay, I can really uh, excel at this and um, – I had a lot of success with a young Japanese player called Toru Suzuki, and um, uh, he won his first tournament. Um, and you know, he, he, he put a lot of it down to uh, me helping him a lot. So that was a big confidence boost for me. Um, and then I, I just got to work closely and, and uh, a lot more with, along with the Japanese players. And it was the Japanese players who invited me then. Uh, now we're talking mid mid nineties. To go caddy for them in the US Open, the US PGA Championships. Even guys I'd never caddy for before, they'd come walking up to me and say, "You know, there's no Japan event. Would you come across and caddy for me at the British Open?" And um, I said, "Yeah, great, <laughs> St Andrews. Why not?" <laughs> if never, you're asking, yeah, been, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you pay for the ticket. And, uh, yeah, I, I guess I can yeah. I can find the time. And then, and then they politely look at you and they say, "Oh, by the way, I've been invited to play the Scottish Open the week before at Carnoustie." Um, could you do that week too? And then, so it was really funny. I'm like, uh, I don't really have to think about this. Uh, sure. <laughs> In a lot of so, ways, Dean, it's a bit like being a player, isn't it? You are your own business and your own brand. And so mm-hmm. word of mouth is your stock in trade. One player needs to say to another player, Dean's a good caddy. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, yeah. very quickly, you run out of business opportunities, don't you? Yeah, you do. You do do. It's a, and I think it's a five year apprenticeship, like most things. And uh, you give yourself a five year run. And it was after, I guess, after five years that um, you know I started to have a good reputation with myself. And um, I, the, the the rep I had, I suppose, was uh, players that never won before. You know, that I seemed to have managed to get them across the line somehow. Yeah. Um, and, and and that's probably the where the the mental side of it of being a touring pro before my helping it kicks in a little bit. Um, sometimes uh, when things are going on out in the golf course, I, I have a tendency to go to sleep because there's no competition there. You know, <laughs> we're walking around, walking around, and I'm kind of going brain dead. But when the uh, on Sunday afternoon, and on Sunday afternoon when you have got a chance to win, I mean, it's all all systems are go. You know, I mean, you're, you're fired up. You know, you um, and, and that's where I come alive. I guess it takes me a while. <laughs> Lots of, well, you you've got to have something to play for, don't you? I suppose if if competition's your drug, then there's got to be some competition yeah. uh, and something yeah, to beat. Exactly. A lot of golfers probably don't understand recreational golfers. And I probably put myself in the mm. category too. Probably don't really understand what does make a good caddy. Why does Tiger Woods pay Joe LaCarva so much money? Surely anybody can pick up and carry the bag. We innately know that that's not 100% true, but you can't help but wonder, can there be that much difference between caddies? What is it, Dean, and were you naturally good to start? I'm going to suggest that part of it might be you you kind of need to be a natural-born lieutenant rather than a general. You're a 2IC as a caddy, aren't you? Correct. Correct. Allow your player, I think one of the big keys is allow your player to do stuff and um, you know allow the captain to, do, to uh, steer the ship. And you just be there on the, on the as a backup and make sure he's got the right information. 
Um, what makes a good caddy? Um, I think of a lot of aspects, and, and to be honest with you, I, uh, the transition of being a player to a caddy was the hardest thing I've ever done too. Uh, there's a difference. And uh, uh, actually Colin Byrne, who, who writes for the Irish Times, Colin's a you know fantastic caddy himself, and he's the last 20 years he's been writing for the Irish Times. He did a wonderful article. Colin on uh, on uh, at, at one of the European tour players made a transition of going to to as a player to a caddy and it was one of the he said it was one of the hardest things he's ever done in his life and Colin did a story on that it was amazing but it's 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 timing um, Joey and Tiger would be right now uh, they've been working together for quite a few years now so they would know each other routinely you know um, when when Tiger walks up to the ball. Joe, will, you know, it's just the timing of giving the information to the player, you know, uh, the yardage. Um, and, and the caddy knowing the golf course is a big aspect. I mean, you've got to get out there Monday, Tuesday to check the course for a start and uh, and have have all the good information. You know, there's a downslope to this green. You don't have to pitch it. You don't have to fly the ball to the green. There's a downslope there. It'll kick on. Um, you know, so the caddy finds that out Monday, Tuesday of each event. But um, uh, a lot of the times the uh, Tiger would be would have been employing experience uh, as he did with Steve Williams and he'd be looking at, at you know Joe's experience with Fred Couples for many many years um, he would be looking at uh, you know Joe's experience around every golf course on the PGA Tour and worldwide so um, that's the thing that, that's the thing Tiger's buying and um, so Joe would have all that information um, good caddies I've found are guys who read the wind so well and uh, they know the wind uh, what I didn't realize when I was in Japan, it's probably one of the hardest winds to study because it's a mountainous country. Mm-hmm. A lot of the golf courses are built on mountains because of the cheap land. So we're up in the hills, you know, caddying in this professional golf tournament and the wind's swirling around. It's so tricky. What I didn't realize, that's great apprenticeship for me. There was, there was really good apprenticeship, you know, instead of being out on an open course, that's flat course, that's just the wind direction's one way. One way, yeah. Um, so um, knowing the wind, um, knowing, when to, knowing, the, knowing when to talk and when to shut up, uh, that's a big key. You know, sometimes, you know, the players under pressure on a Sunday afternoon want, wanting to win a tournament, you know, just feed them the information and, and also try and keep maybe pick the right time to have a light conversation. If you see your player a little nervous on the putting green before we start, uh, before you start, you, you basically try and have a bit of a conversation to him before you kick off and realise whether he, how nervous he is, you know. Sometimes, uh, some days, some players are, they're not as nervous as other days and, uh um, but that's when you've got to, and then you know you can speak freely, and, and or start saying some funny things to lighten up the lighten. You know, he might be a bit tense, and just start, start saying some funny things that might lighten the player up before the tee off. Tiger Woods, so, of course, um, is not Fred Couples, Dean. He hits the ball differently. Mm. His natural trajectory, his natural shot shape will be different. Mm. Uh, so mm. Joe's got to learn all of that as a caddy, and I assume that's a standard. But having been a player. I would imagine that is more difficult because you will stand over every shot as the caddy thinking, this is what I would do. But you can't be thinking that. You've got to be thinking, what's the best choice for the player that I'm working with today, having learnt all of that by working for them? There's a lot more to it than it might appear on the surface, isn't there? Yes, there is. Yes, there is. And um, a a great caddy picks it up quickly Um, within a week. uh, I always, you know, in a lot of cases, uh, you know, introduced caddies to other other players and – um, you know, and I, I, the players turned around and said, oh, look, I'll give him a week and see what, no, I, I said, no, no, look, I've got to be honest with you, you two or three weeks, you know, is the, is the number, you know, 
And um, if a, if a caddy hasn't picked up on on on, on how you know the player plays um, within that period of time, um, it's it probably not going to work out. Uh, some weeks it's just a gem, you know, the uh, the very first week. Uh, you'll turn around and maybe win with a player, but or you know, a top five or a top ten or something, and, and you know, it, it's it's wonderful. But um, the good caddies really pick up a lot yeah. quickly, and um, you know, because there's an undeniable personal element as well, isn't there? A, you spend an awful lot of time together, and that personal element might be element might be as simple as the player decides my relationship with my caddy is very businesslike. And if that suits mm-hmm. the two of you, that can be fantastic. For others, it might be, well, we're going to spend a lot of time together. We need to get along and have similar views or whatever it might be. There needs to be some sort of personal chemistry, doesn't there? And I imagine that just because a relationship doesn't work between a player and a caddy doesn't mean you've either got a bad caddy or a bad player. It may just be bad chemistry. That's so true. So true, yeah. Yeah, you're just not seeing either way. Yeah. Um, that's where I've, I've always maintained to keep it business all the time. I think it's the most reliable thing. Instead of personal, because I think basically because of that experience I had with a, I, I did caddy for Peter O'Malley, a great friend of mine, and and uh, and Craig Warren, both of them, and uh, they were they were friends, and it was hard. And I realise now, uh, in my later years, um, the last twenty years or so, that uh, I decided that you know that it's you know you've got to keep it just keep it business all the time. Very important not to spend too much time with your player. It was another key I found out after years. You know, um, don't go to too many dinners with your player or don't go to too many, you know, just give yourself that space of time away from the player so you can walk, you know, you see each other at the golf course the next day and and, and walk up and go, oh, okay, well, how was dinner last night, you know? Mm-hmm. Now, you're, now you're having a conversation, you, everything's light, the player's relaxed, you know, and, you know, so it wasn't like, you know, your player's not going to get up there and go, I didn't like what you said at the dinner table last <laughs> night, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> um, you know, whatever. You know, you didn't, you're not, you, there's that separation you have to have, yeah. you know. It's, you, can't, you can't, you know, uh, um, Squirrel, who used to caddy for Jeff Ogilvy, I thought this was a classic story, right? Um, I was at the Aussie Masters standing out the front of the, at Huntingdale back in the day when it was there. It was when uh, the Aussie Masters was the first event basically back on the Aussie Tour in February, I think it was. Uh, Jeff was on the US tour at that time. And um, you know, I said, hey, Squirrel, how are you? And he's, you know, Squirrel's an Englishman and, he, uh, you know, funny guy, very, very dry, very dry. And uh, I said, mate, uh, so uh, what'd you get up to during Christmas? Oh, oh, I did this, not much, just hung with the family, blah, 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 blah. So uh, what's, uh, yeah, hanging out? Are you doing any practice with Jeff? And he goes, no, mate, no, no. What's he up to? Oh, not sure. I don't know. Um, when was the last time you contacted him? He says, um, Disney, back in December. He, he just told me to be at the front of the clubhouse Tuesday, 8 a.m. at Huntingdale, the Australian Masters. And, that's, and I said, this is the last time you spoke to him. He said, yep. There you go. <laughs> I so, <turned> up. <laughs> I, I couldn't stop laughing, you know, uh, whether it was Squirrel being very, very dry or uh, Jeff may be able to confirm that story. No, but, uh, I thought Squirrel was a- of the, the little I know of Jeff, that sounds like Jeff for sure. That's exactly <laughs> exactly the sort of thing that uh, that he would do. It's got to be the strangest job in the world, doesn't it, Dean? For all yeah. of those reasons, it's the strangest job by a mile, I would think. It, you know, um, education wise, you know, you've got to be sharp. Yeah, sure. But we meet the biggest, the, oh, the funniest thing for us is meeting the people we meet. Uh, you know the. It's, it's always fascinating for people when we're talking to them and they say, oh, 
you know, wow, you know, uh, that, that Donald Trump, you know, he's no good, he's blah, 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 you know, whatever. Um, well, for being a professional caddy, I got, I got the luxury to meet Donald Trump three or four times. And, oh, really? You know, to talk with him. And, and I thought, wow, you know, I'm not name dropping or anything, but it was just, it was just one of those things where he came up walking out of the blue and, and, uh, you know, it was two, two or three of the occasions was at the, uh, at the Women's British Open at Turnbury. He owned the golf course. So he was there that week and, uh, in 2015. No short and, controversy um, about that, as you'll well remember, Dean. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, um, yeah, there was, uh, but there, he was there a lot, and he was there because he was making uh, design changes to the golf courses a lot. And um, um, and oddly enough, and I had the luxury because he, he wanted to come up and meet Inji and myself because we just won the US Open a couple of weeks before. So, and he saw it on TV. He's a big follower of women's golf. He loves it. Absolutely loves it. Now you are name dropping in G, of course, you mean in G Chun. So now's probably a good time. Run us through a list of some of the players that you've caddied for. I think the your LPGA resume in particular is quite staggering when you add it up. I think it's five or six major winners you've been with when they've won majors. But just give us a quick thumbnail sketch of who you've caddied for over the years. Then we might talk about some of those players. Yeah. Um Male, male uh, players, I did 14 years, uh, and mainly, yeah, as I said, players were on the Japanese tour, uh, which was uh, fantastic. It was a great experience, and um, I got to caddy for um, numerous players, Toru Suzuki, uh, you know, Craig, as I mentioned earlier. But there was also one or two weeks, I'd, you know, I'd have a, have a couple of weeks off, and Graham Marsh would need a caddy uh, for the week, and I'd go and caddy for him. And, and, and uh, Pete Senior, I did a, a week for Pete there up one time because Carlo couldn't be there. Uh, um, you know, and then I got to get to caddy for a lot of the better players. Brian Watts was a player on the Japanese tour that Brian got his US uh, tour card and Brian gave me the in to go to the PGA tour. So um, Brian finished second at the British I was going to say, Brian, who was in the playoff with Marco Mira, hit one of the most amazing bunker shots we've ever seen on the 18th at Birkdale, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. Yeah. A lot of things happened that week. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, Were you caddying for so him that week? I wasn't. No, I wasn't no. with Brian then. No, um, he had a, a good buddy of his, Andy, on the bag then. And um, so anyway, a horrible accident Andy had later on. But Brian's obviously now got his PGA Tour card from that event, and he's left Japan. Now he's going to the US. And um, so um, he had Andy on the bag, and Andy had this horrible accident in uh, Reno, the Reno Open, where he's standing on the back of a cart. Uh, the the cart used to take you from one to. It's quite a hilly course at Reno. It used to take you from the green to the next tee by cart. Anyway, so one of the volunteers, one of the carts didn't have a governor on it, but it controls the speed of it. And they did a, uh, they, they turned around the uh, the cart path, and Andy was standing on the back with Brian sitting in front, and this volunteer was just hurling around the around the corner, and Andy couldn't hang on at the back, mm-hmm. and he fell off the cart and and straight into a. a uh, cactus, Ooh. and and it did a lot of rib damage and straight into it. Uh, oh, it was just horrendous. But um, he almost lost his life, and uh, wow. so anyway, he was out of caddying. Then, then lo and behold, I get the phone call, call up to to work for Brian, and um, yeah, so Brian gave me the end of the PGA tour, and so for then um, I got into um, uh, working for a couple of players in the PGA tour, which was great. I, I, I stayed with Brian for about six months, I guess, and. Again, you, you just find out it's not clicking. You're missing the cuts by one, and uh, you know, you, oh, you just, it, it's, it's just no chemistry there, you know. And um, I might have been doing something wrong that you know I wasn't, you know, we weren't on the same wavelength as, with Brian. I, it just didn't work out, you know. So sometimes you've got to move on uh, because financially you're not supporting yourself on the road. 
and the, the player's looking at you going, well, you know, this is a lot of pressure. You know? It almost <laughs> doesn't matter why it's not working, does it, whether it's your fault. It, it doesn't matter why. It just has to stop. Nah, it does, yeah. yeah you're better off stopping. And nine times out of ten, being an ex-tour player, I kind of turned around to the player. I said, you know, you're feeling comfortable or not? You know, because I'm fine. No, no, you're all right, you know. Oh, I'm just, I'm just asking you in case there's, you know, things are okay, and mm-hmm. you've just got to make sure all the time, you know. Yeah. And, you know, uh, you know and then they, all of a sudden they'll pop up and say, "Oh, look, I didn't really like you. I didn't really like what you did back on number thirteen or twelve or something." You know, blah blah blah. Oh, okay, all right. I'll make sure that you know that fixes itself. Um, the biggest, the one thing I wanted to point out to you, Rod, was the biggest thing I found. Uh, I did a season for Peter O'Malley in two thousand, and it was a big turning point for myself. It, it was in my caddying because. On the European tour, it um, um, it really sharpened up my caddy, and uh, because the European tour has got so many different golf courses, you got soft courses, you got firm courses, you got you know the, you go to Germany where the ball doesn't you know it's all carry mm-hmm. uh, the soft golf course, and then you go to Ireland the following week and it's bouncing you know running out at thirty yards back to being Australian style golf you know, um, but so from that I got to learn so much more about caddy, and then basically from the caddies themselves too. So the caddies had a massive impact on me. It wasn't the, the point I'm making there is it wasn't so much the players that I was working for that I was learning off. It was actually the other caddies, which I really appreciated. Mm-hmm. You know, just listening and watching the other caddies and uh, in, in, in big tournaments and big events. So that was a big help. So I just wanted to make that point. Um, so I'm just going along and I'm working for, uh, you know, good players, uh, I, I, Andre Stoltz out of the blue. Uh, Andre was uh, had some couple of good finishes in Australia during during the off season, and um, he asked me to come and caddy for him in Adelaide, and we had a really good result there. And then and then he uh, basically asked me to come up. With, Andre got his card to go play the Japanese tour, and then I decided uh, I, I needed some. I really love Japan. I want to get back there. And uh, as it turned out, Andre uh, invited me up to Japan. And uh, to caddy for him up there, and we had a really good run. Um, I think the second tournament, I ended up working for him in Japan. We won it, um, and then he was also because of the events in Australia back then, we we're connected with the nationwide tour. Andre was able to play uh, 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 nationwide events in the United States. So straight after he won, he turned around and said to me, "He said, look, you want to come to the US and play some nationwide events because if I do well, I've already got good money up on the nationwide tour." Um, then I can, you know, if I do well in the US uh, out of half a dozen events, uh, then I could probably lock my PGA Tour card up for the following year. Anyway, from that, Stolte invited me back over to the US. Now I'm going, I'm going back to the US now. And um, What a and player, by the way, Andre Stoltz. Of all the people you can tell us about, Andre, what a player. What an ability yeah. to just go low. Yeah, correct, never correct. And I've never seen a player before, Rod, like Stolte, where he actually – he loved his name on the on the leaderboard. Yeah. You know, he really did. Um, he was up there whenever he saw his name on the leaderboard. He wanted to keep it there. Yeah. Um, he was all the most difficult player to caddy for when when, when he would look like missing the cut on a Friday afternoon. Um, he was. I mean, he would no interest. You most players, it. Well, no, he wouldn't. He'd be just really narky and you know, really on top of you kind of thing. And, and whereas, hang on, you're supposed to be like that when you're leading a tournament. Yeah, not the other way around. That's right. You got it all backwards here, Andre. Good yeah, film. but he was. Yeah, uh, I could tell because he was just personally driven. You know, he hated missing cuts. He hated, you know, and uh, yeah, he's quite a character. Uh, and uh, yeah, it, it was Andre. Uh, getting back to you, sorry about this. Uh, the drifting, drifting off a little bit, but uh, uh, Andre, and then 
it was around 2004 this was and you know I've caddied for a lot of players and uh, I had the pleasure of meeting uh, Jack Nicholas in 98 quite a few times I was in the same group as him and at the British Open and a few other events, and um, and in any way, um, I got to caddy for him in Australia, which was great. Um, so, I mean, you, you meet some of the best, and you're watching the best players, the best caddies. You're picking up so much information. And, but uh, I just, I was getting by 2004 and five, I was getting a little what do I have to say stale with the industry a bit. I was, I wasn't that, wasn't that. Um, you weren't enjoying uh, it anymore. It wasn't yeah, I wasn't fun. enjoying it so much. That's travel, probably because I was doing so many events each each year. I think I was kind of getting a little bit of burnout. But I kind of wasn't enjoying the men's side of it so much. I was, you know, a, a, a whole whole bunch of prize money was going on around us at the PGA Tour and all that. Um, but there was, uh, I can't put my finger on it, right? But what it was, but uh, I decided I need a change, and um, I went home for about a month, and I got a phone call uh, from a management company back in. Japan, and uh, they, they asked me to, if I'd be interested to work for a female player in Japan. I said, oh, okay, well, well gee, I've never caddied for a woman before. This is interesting. So this is 2005, and, and the, the woman's name was Yuri Fudo. I didn't know who Yuri Fudo was because I didn't really follow women's golf that much. And so, um, oh, okay. And I didn't, you know, I didn't have much access to the internet and stuff. I wasn't, you know, didn't really look her up or anything. So I said, oh, okay, well, sure. You know, I'd just love the opportunity to go back to Japan again and you know, for women's golf, yeah, that might be interesting, you know. So I went up and I, I, I didn't realise that she was the number one player and, you know, you, of course you want to check on these things, but the people that were telling me, oh, she was, yeah, she's a pretty good player, but they didn't follow women's golf at also. So they weren't giving me really like, exact information. So I just went up. I thought I'll go up and do a couple of weeks for her and come home again, but I didn't realise she was, no, man, this this girl could play. Oh, my God. 50 times a so, winner on the Japan ladies tour. Yeah, team. So got a bit yeah. of ability, most definitely, yeah. Well, the funny part is Japan golf's funny, Rod, because uh, some of their professional tournaments, they only use house caddies. Yuri only used a house caddy. She never caddied, she never had a foreigner on the bag what? before. <laughs> what, so she would turn um, up each week had, and get a different caddy? she just used a house caddy each week. The house caddies were available there each week, and yeah, occasionally she'd have a friend on the bag or whatever. Wow. Guess. But but she never had anybody full time employed. Wow! And I was the first person that she employed first full time. And why? Because she Do you had, know why and how they came yeah, to you. Yeah, I found out. I found out that she had visions of wanting to go on the LPGA tour. She was she'd already won the the money ranking three or four times in Japan, and then she decided that uh, maybe aspirations of going to the LPGA Tour at the age of, you know, early 30s, which is quite old for an Asian player, to make that decision. And she would have been, no, sorry, late 20s, and she was probably 28, 29. And um, so anyway, uh, uh, Yuri uh, took me on as, well, teach me English and, you know, caddy for me. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. But uh, what I didn't realise, she was very, very difficult to caddy for, very, very difficult, because she was such her own boss. She was she was such her own, you know. You li- uh, she literally just all of this. yeah. You're just a bag carrier, really, aren't you? She's used to just taking the a different caddy each week. You've got to assume that she's pretty much doing everything herself because you can't possibly yes, yeah. change caddies every week yeah. as a top player any other way. Yeah, and the funny part was is she walked fast. She did everything fast, like most Japanese tour players do. And I was I was used to that. But the funny part was she she had the yardage before I actually came back and had the yardage. You know, so I had to really quicken up. <laughs> she was out caddying up you. everything. <laughs> well, she was she was out caddying me, you know, and, and playing at the same time. It was so funny, you know. And uh, yeah, but, but she was difficult. And um, 
uh, very, very tough to caddy for and hard, very, very tough. And, and uh, So anyway, we won twice, the funny part. You know, most guys will be, keep their job after that. But Yuri decided after uh, eight weeks, uh, eight, nine weeks, I think it was, nine weeks, she goes, uh, you know, Dean Zenzen dummy, no good. Well, that was it. <laughs> so that was it. We parted company. Two, parted two wins in nine weeks and you're gone. Yeah. Tough yeah, school. Yeah, yeah. Tough school, tough school. Asia is a tough school. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, you know, went on from Yuri, and I thought, what am I going to do now? And I, there was a, a young Japanese girl looking to go to the LPGA to go back to America, and I thought, okay, I'll go and help her out for a couple of months, and that, that ended up blossoming. We, we did all right, and then uh, I did end up doing the full season for her in America on the LPGA tour, and from that, um, I uh, 2008 now. And at uh, the start of 2008, uh, I was at home and I got a phone call uh, to from a good buddy of mine, Sean Clues, who caddied at the time he was caddying for a Korean girl called He Won Hunt. And um, and now and and, and that, at that time, sorry, uh, Sean turned around and said, uh, "Look, there's a young Korean girl looking for looking for a uh, caddy to uh, to work for at the Gold Coast. Uh, sorry, the Melbourne tournament." The uh, 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 we were at Kingston Heath Australian Open mm-hmm. in 2008, Women's Open. And then uh, she's going to go up and wants to play the uh, Gold Coast event uh, and on the Gold Coast, the Australian Masters. And I said, okay, great. Um, I decided to, yeah, okay, I'll do it a couple of weeks. I didn't know much about this young girl and, uh, and we met each other at the golf course. Uh, ironically, I had met her over at a dinner in, 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 uh, in France at the Evian event the year before. Um, so Evian was part of the, uh, the LPGA tour, so we went across and did that. And um, the funny part was I met this young Korean girl at a dinner, and um, but I didn't realise that I'd be meeting her six months again and caddying <laughs> for her. I didn't have a clue that I was supposed to caddy for her. I just walked past her at the putting green. She was waving at me, and then I went over and I said, oh, nice to meet you. I met you in, I met you in uh, France. Da, 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 da. She goes, yeah, um, I'll see you at 8 o'clock tomorrow. And I'm like... What are you talking about? She goes, oh, you're caddying for me. I'm like, oh, wow, right. Somebody That's didn't not- put two and two together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this tells you how smart I am. But anyway, <laughs> so anyway, the, uh, I ended up caddying for um, yeah, young girl's name was uh, G.A. Shin. What an interesting and different view of the game you get from the caddies. I hope that you're enjoying some of Dean's insights as he's talking here. Now, while you're contemplating everything that he's said so far, there's a little bit of admin that I need to get through. So, firstly, a reminder to check out the back catalogue of The Thing About Golf if you've only recently discovered us. You'll find an eclectic mix of guests, from course designers to administrators and even the odd writer. Two ways you can access the archives. First, by visiting the Golf Australia website and clicking the podcast tab at the top of the page. Or the best way is simply to become a subscriber. It's free and means that not only do you get access to all of our past shows, but all of our future episodes simply arrive on the phone as soon as they're released. It's what all the woke kids are doing, and you'll find us on all the major listening apps, which for most people will be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you're using any of the others, we know that you're an advanced podcast listener. 
Uh, and finally, if you'd like to get in touch with a suggestion or some feedback, you can contact me on Twitter at, at Rod underscore Mori. That's capital R-O-D underscore capital M-O-R-R-I. Uh, my direct messages are open. Uh, I do get messages from lots of people, which is fantastic, and I do try to respond to them all. If I have missed you, if you've sent me something I haven't responded, send me another message and I will make sure to write that wrong. The show also has its own handle on Twitter at, at ThingGolf, capital T-H-I-N-G, capital G-O-L-F. Good one to follow to keep up with episode releases. Uh, you can also go through the Golf Australia magazine Twitter feed at, at GolfOstMag, G-O-L-F-A-U-S-T. M-A-G. Uh, you can look up the magazine on Facebook. Just search for Golf Australia uh, magazine, not organisation. Or if you're really, really old school, send us an email, golf at golfaustralia.com.au. Now, if you didn't write all that down, shame on you. I just, of course, links to all of those communication methods can be found in the show notes below. That's enough out of me. Time to get back to Dean Hurden. So, GA, um, um, after the first day, the practice round. I'll see you at eight o'clock. We could, we didn't go to the driving range, and uh, um, so we went straight on the first tee. Kept hit a couple of putts and went straight on the first tee to have the practice round. And uh, so I got we had a wonderful day. And just you know, she didn't bother doing any practice afterwards because she was still a little bit. Uh, she said she's just still tired from the flight from the you know the, the Saturday night flight or the Sunday flight, whatever it was. And so um, anyway, I said okay, fine. We'll see you tomorrow. And uh, you know, and I got thinking that night over dinner. This girl hardly missed a shot, <laughs> you know, during the 18 holes. Mm-hmm. Uh, she plays pretty good. Wow, you know, didn't miss a fairway. Sometimes drop down two balls and the second ball would go exactly where you wanted and the first ball, as, as did the first ball. Um, so, anyhow, the second day uh, we walked, we met each other at the range, the driving range and, or the car park basically, and then we walked to the range and and started hitting balls and she started, you know, to the 100 sign. There's a, a big round sign about a metre wide and so... She starts hitting shots to that. Anyway, all of a sudden, the third ball goes clunk, big, big noise, you know, and the, and the fifth ball clunk again. <laughs> you know, and then three in a row hit it. And I'm going, wow, she's a decent wedge player. Wow, you know. I didn't think you that good, but, you know, yeah, she's a decent wedge player. Wow. Anyway, so get get onto the 150, and, of course, you know, she's got the seven iron out and the six iron out and whatever. Uh, clunk again. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, people this, won't believe you know, about this, Dean, but, she really is and was that good, isn't she? Players will fawn over rounds of golf they play with her and say exactly what you – she literally never missed a shot. No, doesn't, doesn't. I can honestly say that G.A. Shin probably has one. I mean, she's the one player – you know, there's certain players at Caddy Ford that actually – there's, you know, people talk about there's shot makers and there's good scorers. Mm-hmm. Um, G.A. was the shot maker and uh, – you know, she she would win a golf tournament in ball striking. You know, most you know, look at the PGA Tour stats. You know, the best putter wins. Yeah, of course. You know, a lot of the time, GA would actually win tournaments from a ball striking, and because it's four days, yeah. the three day tournament, the three day tournaments they sometimes have on LPGA events and and, and women's tournaments, GA is less a chance of winning okay. because. Uh, because her uh, ball striking is so good, day and if her putting's a little bit, if it's just consistently the same, or yeah, not quite on, you know, um, she'll have less chance of winning the three rounder than she will the actual four rounder because she wear the field out. She would wear them out yeah. just for the ball striking. She consistent, consistent, consistent. Yeah, GA has the one thing that I, I I'm wondering whether it's in the Guinness Book of Records or not. But um, the we had a, a one ten tea time at the Korean L. 
LPGA Championships. So on the first on the first day on the Thursday, so we're basically the last group, the second last group. And they did that for television reasons, I guess. But the um, so we haven't teed off yet. The leading score was one under on the leaderboard. But it was you know quite windy, and um, I think GA Shin must hold this record for any golf professional. It's a four round tournament, you know, uh, LPGA event. She held her second shot on the first hole to go to two under. And led the tournament for 72 holes and went on to win it by three. <laughs> so at no stage was she ever behind the leader. Correct. Wow. And with an afternoon tea time. On with an, uh, now, yeah, exactly. I the guy. Half the field posted already. A, 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 a. Yeah, they're out on the course and players are doing it. That's quite extraordinary, isn't it? That is, uh, that is truly She remarkable. held a second shot and, um, yeah, she hit a utility club and we couldn't see the green. It was elevated and, uh, and all of a sudden the gallery just went mad, you know, the, well, you know, oh, must have gone in. We get up there, of course, you know, she was in the hole, but we, we went straight. To, one under was leading the tournament. She went straight to two under and then ended up winning the thing by three or four. Then, never never lost the lead. Yeah. Now, hardcore so, yeah. golf fans will know the name G.A. Shin, and they might even know a bit of the stuff that sort of you and I are suggesting there. If you're a really avid follower of the game, just what a special talent mm. she is. But we never really got to see G.A. Shin play at sort of the top levels on the LPGA, which is where all the attention is. Um, she plays mm. mostly in Japan and at home in Korea. Tell people why that is, Dean, because it's it's quite a sad mm. but also quite a, a heartening story, isn't it? Yeah, Gia is very – I mean, she, she lost a mum at the age of 13 and then uh, – A car accident, uh, a very I think. driven player. She um, uh, 2008, she won the British Open, and that was a big turning point for her because it was the first international event outside Korea to win. And um, which automatically gave her the, the run of going to play the LPGA. Mm-hmm. Um, and she thought, okay, great. But in that same year, 2008, she also won in Japan and, and it allowed her to play the Japanese tour. And um, so anyway, she basically, her father really pushed her to play the LPGA because it was the one tour that, you know, mm. you know the glitz, the glamour, the, the prize money's bigger and, yeah. and everything. And uh but Gia had this soft spot for Japan um, after spending you know, just a few weeks there and, and playing some tournaments and stuff. And so, um, but now she's turned around, and won the British later that year, and now she has her LPGA license to play the tour there and, and in America. And, and her dad pushed her to, to go do it, and um, and she did. Uh, Two thousand nine, leading money winner, and, uh, and 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 became number one in the world from uh, Lorena Ochoa. <clears throat> when Lorena announced her retirement, the GA became number one in the world straight away. And so um, what transitioned from that, GA got to play. We played so many tournaments in two, 2008 and 2009. I think we played 38 tournaments in 2008. I think we played 37 in 2009. Wow. And they weren't, just down, they weren't just down the road. They were, you know, uh, all over the place. We were in you know, Tokyo one week. The, next, the following week, we are going across to California. Uh, following week after that, we're on. We're heading over to Evian, or, or you know, going to play the Evian Masters or something, and then back to Japan again uh, to try and. She tried to keep her card basically alive on both tours. Both tours, yeah. That's a, which was really, really difficult. Yeah. Uh, it's really tough to do for any pro golfer to keep a card on uh, one tour, let alone uh, trying to keep it going on two or three. So um, from that. Um, GA now it's 2009, 2010. You know, and. I could tell she really didn't grasp America. Um, you know, she liked it, you know, going for touring trips or something, a, a week off or, you know, going here, there. But she really didn't uh, take it 
to heart or love it, you know, as much as she loved playing in Japan. So um, anyway, as it turned out, um, she got her way and uh, decided to. she had that big talk with her father. And most Korean players are very connected with their parents and their father. So, um, you know, they, they, they had the meeting and um, obviously dad gave her permission, okay, go and play the Japanese tour. And she loves it there now. And, and you know, she's been in the top five in the money list and for the last seven or eight years there. Um, world ranking wise, you don't get as much points in Japan, uh, which is kind of I think that's suffered. Uh, that doesn't rank her as, as good as what she really is still. And I think she's still in the top twenty five or something or top thirty. And but she we, really, basically, if you're going to rank GA, I would still put her at tenth in the world. We just don't um, get to yeah. see her, do we, as fans? Very often because she plays predominantly in Japan. It's very rare that we actually get to see her. But what a player she's been to here is to Australia. She's got a very good relationship with Australia. Of course, she had that. Playoff with Kari. Was that that week? Was that 08 when you caddied for her and her yes. and Kari were in a yeah, playoff? That yeah, was, was an incredible finish you know, to the Kari Open. Turned around and birdied 16, 17 or something to, to, to get in the playoff. And then uh, after three three holes, uh, you know, the beautiful thing, uh, I think uh, Australia got to capture a lot of GA and what her character was about was yeah. uh, when soon as Kari hold the putt, the ABC television had the camera straight on GA and there she was clapping and, and she had a tear in her eye for Kari because she knew it was a big event for her to win her local yeah, uh, uh, Open Championship. And, and it was I think it was a big uh, turning point for Curry because she hadn't won in a while. So mm. G.A. figured that out straight away and she knew it impacted Australia a lot. And she hit, there it was on the camera. She's up there clapping away and gave her the biggest hug. And, yeah. you know, she's just a great loser, G.A. You know, she's a great winner, but she's, a, she's also, if she finishes second, she's the most humble Gracious, I think, is the word you're looking for as opposed to great. That would suggest she's very good at losing, which she isn't. But <laughs> when she loses, yeah. she's gracious, which is a, a different gracious. thing. GA, of course, a very special talent. You are now based in Korea. We might talk about that shortly. But just run through some of the, the names that people will recognize. I think you caddied for now. Let me get this right. So we know you caddied for Inji Chun because you mentioned that when she won the US Open. Mm. So on you, you caddied for her mm. when she won the US Open. So young, I got very lucky. Uh, very lucky. Um, I went. GA and I were part of the company in 2011. My, mum, my mother had a bad case of Alzheimer's. So uh, I found it really tough traveling and being away from her, you know, knowing that she was you know, suffering. So I decided it was a hard decision. GA was number two in the world at the time, uh, but I decided that enough was enough. And, um, you know, the, the, uh, I'll probably just put the caddying on hold for a while mm-hmm. and go home. And so I did that. Um, lo and behold, about six months later, um, I'm getting a, uh, I get a, a phone call from uh, Soo Young's manager in Korea, and um, in, uh, which I knew really well. He's a good friend of mine, uh, Mike. His name was, and uh, Soo Young really wants you to. Are you free to come and caddy for? Soo Young won a tournament in Korea uh, two or three weeks before the US Open, um, and that was on the Korean tour. So her game got a little lost there for a couple of years, and then. Uh, she turned around one, so she was on a bit of a comeback trail. And then, um, lo and behold, that winning that tournament put her in a category that which allowed her to play the U.S. Open. I don't know what category that was, but anyway, um, now she's playing the U.S. Open plus Evian. And she asked me to, if, you know, would you mind coming away from Australia and come and caddy for, come caddy for her for those two weeks, the U.S. Open and the Evian. So, lo and behold, it is the uh, U.S. Open. In 2011 at the Broadmoor, and um, we rocked up and had a, you know nice practice rounds and all the, the usual routine, you know. And um, uh, by the end of the week, you know, it was a uh, it was a 
a long drawn out week because the USGA, I really felt location wise, they really screwed up um, that time of year. Um, it was in July, and it's you could pretty much set your watch on a th- on an afternoon thunderstorm in Colorado. So um, the worst part about it was, you know, now we've got the US Open, we're trying to stage a golf event, and being four o'clock in the afternoon and raining as much as it was, uh, the, the tournament ended up being dragged on and delays, and stops and starts. It was a really hard week, and. Um, anyway, lo and behold, uh, we uh, we get around to the 16th tee in the last round, and probably one of my mo- most embarrassing moments in life, I think, it was standing on the tee there, and uh, it was getting dark. It was 8:20 at night, and there's four groups behind us, and it's getting dark. So we're not going to finish. We know that. It's just a matter of trying to get as many holes in as possible, and then walk off. Well, Saw Young bent down on the 16th tee there, and, and it's a short par three downhill, but behind it was some thick pine trees and really struggling to see the flag stick. And, and uh, Saw Young kind of looked at me and gone, where's the flag stick? And I've gone, oh, hang on, we can't see the flag stick, so we'll call it. So I walked across to the rules official and said to him, I said, oh, mate, we just like to call it, thanks. You know, we can't see the flag stick. Can we go in? And he abruptly turned around and gone, no, you've got to tee it up. And I've gone, well, no, we don't. We can't see the flag stick, mate, so we want to walk in. And it's windy. I'm thinking, you know, we're a shot behind the lead. He Kyung So had already finished, and she was leading the tournament. And um, we're one shot behind the lead, and I'm thinking, oh, it'd be nice if we can get off the golf course now because these next three holes are going to be really tough. Mm. So the rules official said, no. He says, you, Morgan Pressel and uh, Paula Kramer behind you, they asked for to stop play, and that was, you know. And I said, well, how long ago was that? And he says, about six, seven minutes ago. And I said, well, it's six or seven minutes darker now. <laughs> this is how this yeah. works. It gets darker so, the longer it goes on, my friend. You might have missed this. And I, yeah. And I, there's 20 or 30 people around the back of the tee and, um, you know, the gallery. And, um, and I'm just kind of you, – you're caught up in the emotion because you've got a chance to win the US mm-hmm. Open, you know. And I've said to the guys, you know, mate, you, you're kidding me. It's six or seven minutes darker. I mean, what, I've never heard this before. You know, what are you talking about? He says, if you don't hit it, you're going to be disqualified. I've gone, what? And I said, now you're going to another level. <laughs> I said, I've never heard of a player being disqualified well, so, <laughs> not hitting a golf ball. But at that, well, at that stage there, though, you're kind of now the problem, aren't you? Your player's about to yes. be punished for something that you're forcing the issue on. So that's a huge yeah. responsibility to have. There must be a lot of stuff yeah. swirling around in the mind while that's going on. Exactly. And, Rod, I mean, I, I, you know, I've got utmost respect for rules officials on the golf course. I don't go off at all, and I, I totally appreciate it. And some of these people are – you know, they're doing it on volunteer. It's volunteer basis sometimes with the USGA. They're bringing in officials that work for the GA, USGA from all over the country to come and caddy, or uh, sorry, be rules, rules officials. And we've got the luxury of that week of having a rules official for each group, you know, so it's pretty much instant whatever goes on out there. You can get instant ruling, you know. And so I've got the utmost respect for those people. And they're long days, very, very long days. And it was a long week, but I kind of lost it with this guy. Right. <laughs> and, and I said, mate, Get on the, I said, get on the walkie-talkie, get Mike Davis, get whoever you want on the walkie-talkie and get somebody out here, will you, to come and have a look at this flag stick. And uh, so anyway, he radioed in and Mike Davis is on the other end, I think, and he's turned around and gone, oh, look, we're, we're thinking about calling it anyway. And I'm just shaking my head and I'm losing it. You know, the, the, the gallery, 20 or 30 people behind the tee are just laughing their heads off. And I said, well, why don't you call the RNA in Scotland? You know, like this, it's one o'clock in the morning. You know? what, what would be known in this day and age as a Karen Dean is what you've done yeah. there. <laughs> That's what's yeah. happened there. Exactly. Understandable, though. So anyway, we had to 
cut a long story short, but I'm sorry to drag it on for listeners. But um, the um, the funny part was, um, yeah, okay, they've called it. We walked in, um, you know, and I was pretty irate still when I got in. <laughs> you know, like still, God, I can't believe this guy wanted to disqualify us. You know? Anyway, uh, the funny part was we got in. There was no no drama, and then um, next morning had to tee it up, and uh, not a not a hardly a breath of breeze. The next morning, sun's out. We've Perfect. Got three holes to play. So Young's done what she's done, and she's basically gone par par birdie. Hit a beautiful uh, five iron shot in the six feet uh, on eighteen and made the putt. And uh, we're going now we're in the playoff. But the luxury that So Young had was she's already hit, she's already played three holes. Already played three holes, not just hit balls on the range. Played three holes exactly. Yeah. She's actually played holes. She's done the warm up and then gone yeah. and played three holes. So Heat Young's just on the range warming up. So she doesn't know, you know, what a mojo is feeling like, or you know, we've already gone through. That was by playing three holes. So. Yeah, um, that's so we a bad had break, isn't and, it? Um, bad break for her. Good break for Sion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it was a tough week overall. I mean, to be honest with you, now I, I'm not taking anything away from Sion at all. You know, we won the event. I was really happy, but to be honest with you, I think there was only two people happy that week. It was such a tough week, um, and it's just a long drawn out tournament. And uh, He Kang was very, very unlucky. She played wonderful golf to shoot the score she did by finishing Sunday night, and uh, we said uh, those three holes mattered a lot at the yeah. end. The cru- um, part of the cruelty of the game, Dean. That, that's, it is. Sometimes it, is. it falls for you. Professionals have got to take it on the chin. That's exactly right. It, you, know, you, you, mm. you can only do what you can do. Well, you know, she, she's quite special, Sayon, isn't she? Not just as a player. She's a fantastic player, but she's quite a special uh, human and being. She's uh, And she's got a great affinity here with Australia, as do quite a few of the Korean players. They come out here and play both the Australian Women's Open and the Vic Open, both LPGA events, of course. So we get to see some of the big-name players. But they always seem to enjoy their time here. There's a real affinity. I know that, well, Sayon's unusual. She likes Vegemite. I don't think most people would uh, <laughs> would cop to that. But she has a real affinity. She gave, I think, half of her winnings at the Vic Open this past year to the Bushfire Relief Fund. She had to be talked out of giving all of them. I think it was Clay's told her that she didn't have to give 100%, 50% would be enough. She did a similar thing, I think, at the start of the year with COVID. She won a tournament in Korea, did she not, and gave all of her winnings Correct. to her. To COVID recently. She won the Korean Open. She just won the Korean Open a few weeks ago and uh, very special of it. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Just a fantastic, um, wonderful, and a wonderful player uh, to watch play. Just fantastic. Her personality is very, very special. Uh, I got to meet So Young in 2008 while I was caddying for GA and um, I'd never met her before. And all of a sudden, hardly, you've got to, people have got, uh, have got to understand 10, 15 years ago in Korea, not many people, the percentage of people speaking English was very, very low. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, there's this wave that's happened in Korea where a lot of young students went off to America in the 90s and early 2000s to, you know, to study English. And, and the parents pushed them out. They'd go to New Zealand, Australia, America, wherever. And um, basically, they'd learn English. But, you know, and, and but the, the outcome of that is the wave is now coming back to be with their grandparents. With now they're married and, you know, they're, they're back and they're fluent in English. So two waves are happening yeah. where... English is being studied and, and, and practiced, but the other wave is the people coming back from overseas. And so now this country right now, back in those days, I'd say two, two or three, two and seven, no, two and ten would speak English. Uh, now you're looking at six or seven people right. speak English. You know, you, of course, so I've noticed a huge difference. Yeah, you live in Korea. Do, so you, we, do you speak Korean, Dean, or do you get by just speaking English well. in Korea? Right, okay. As I said, the point I just made is six or seven people speak English now out of yeah, ten. So you don't need to. I'm a little lazy. Yeah. I'm a little lazy. I haven't studied up on it much at all. But So Young's case was um, she came she, 2008. I mean, she, she was a, she went to uh, Yonsei University here, and uh, 
which is a very high-class university, but she got into studying English in, in while she was in the university. And she came walking up to me the first day I met her, and she says, hi, my name's Saw Young, and I speak English, you know, very well. And I was, I was just, like, flabbergasted. And I'm, oh, Saw Young, gave her a big hug. And, hey, how you doing? And I just a big smile. And she was just a breath of fresh air, you know, just unbelievable. GA and her got on really well. And that was her rookie year, 2008. And she turned around and won that tournament. That was the very first tournament as a professional. Wow. She won it in the KLPGA Tour. And there was big raps on her because she she was a national team player and amateur top amateur and that. So, but um, what I'm getting forward to was uh, that So Young, GA, and a, another woman called He Kyung So actually broke down the wall on the LPGA a little bit. There was a little bit of a, uh, I wouldn't say you know the big big huge influx of players, Korean players coming on the LPGA tour, and there was a bit of what's the word? Uh, I wouldn't say uh, just like friction between. Sure. You know, an American player or a Western player would be like, oh, not another, another Korean's going to, you know, kick our butt or do it. <laughs> so there was a bit of animosity. What's the word? I don't know, friction, I guess. So Young turns around and wins the US Open and, you know, in, in what, 2011. And, but GA had already been out there. I think GA was one of the big instigators because she's such a wonderful personality, you know, and So Young, wonderful personality. And another girl called Hikyung So, and, and who, you know, everybody adored. You know, just great personality. They all spoke English quite well. They were, or they were, you know, wanting to speak English really well. Classy, classy. So they broke the wall. The, the, the wall came down because their personalities were way, way above some of the, some of the Western girls. Yeah, well, that, that's exactly yeah. right. And the, they're all bit, and their sense of entitlement that we <laughs> it's not uncommon to see sometimes in the game. <laughs> In the West, but what is the key? What? Why do we see this influx of Korean women players in particular? We don't see it as much with the men, and we know that there's a there's a military uh, conscription service element to that. That the young guys lose a year or two of competitive golf at a pretty crucial time in their career, and I think that goes a long way to explain. We've seen some fantastic starts to careers, which have then sputtered after having to go and do national service. But what is it about the women's game in Korea that produces these? really quite remarkable golfers that we see coming out of Korea. And is the game as popular in Korea, the women's game, as we're led to believe? Some people will tell you it's 10 times more popular than the men's game. Yes, it is. It's probably not, not, not as, I wouldn't say 10 times, but it's, it's, uh, the ratings are up there, uh, definitely more than the men. Uh, it's such a good product. Uh, the girls present themselves well, right? You know, they, they dress well, they, they look they're fit, you know. Uh, they train hard. But the, the, I think the bigger picture is, they're trained as professional golfers early. Uh, they've got this wonderful three-tier system, the KLPGA, all out of the one office. Um, they've got one tour, which you can just imagine a young girl, 16, 17, wanting to be a budding professional, you know. Um, so she's got, where do you go? So they've got this system in Korea. You can just rock up and go play a jump tour event. They call it jump tour because you're making the jump from amateur to professional. And what it is is uh, you're able to play as an amateur uh, but no, can't accept any prize money. Um, if you're not a member of the KLPGA, so but you're still able to go play those events and pay an entry for, um, and you were able to earn points. So you test yourself, right? get to see how so good you are yourself, yeah. against the others of that level, yeah. So then by the end of the season, if you're playing all these events, and there's 22 events, 23 events, and there's jump to it. So you're able to earn points, and then uh, if your points are high enough, and um, and you move on to the what they call the dream tour, which is a secondary tour, or the second tour. And once you start making it on the Dream Tour, now, then you, it allows you to get, get on to the KLPGA Tour. So any girl that you see on TV 
you know, on the LPGA tour, they've already played basically two, three tours to to be um, to be where they are, and you know, so it was uh, uh, it, it's it's very strong in the amateur ranks here as well, mm-hmm. but it's got this avenue of hardening and toughening a, a, a tour player oh. traveling around Korea and, and being and the way they conduct themselves professionally is so much. It's it's wonderful, you know. They've got a great, wonderful system, you know. Mm-hmm. And so this three tier system was uh, is is definitely working, and it's and it's part of the definitely part of the reason why the numbers are there. There's massive numbers coming through, and um, it's 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 amazing. You know, I, I mentioned to um, when uh, uh, Chung Inji won the uh, U.S. Open in 2015. I was speaking to some media guys, and I mentioned this three-tier system to this guy, and the, and the guy turned around and said, oh, that's like a triple leg in baseball, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, exactly. You know, that's why you've got wonderful baseball players in America, because you, you've got this wonderful tier system. So, you know, you, you can actually go play a tour, you know. Had you uh, had so, that, Dean, who knows Who knows how, how, how much better you might have been, or how much earlier you would have realised that you weren't going to make it. That's the two things it does, isn't that, it? it? It confirms for those who are good enough, and it tells people who aren't, Long before they've dedicated too much time and money to it, you're probably not going to make it. Think about giving it yeah. away, perhaps. You hit that right on the head, right? You know, it's just the girl's going to know early, quickly. Uh, and the age of eighteen, or you know, I couldn't make it on the jump tour, so I'm, give me a tennis record. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I'll, try, you know? I'll go and try something else. Investment uh, banking, maybe. Or yeah, exactly. Or dad or dad's pushing a tennis record. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, yeah. You know, you're not making it as a golfer. Here's a tennis record. Give give, give that uh, a go. So, in which which brings us to this point. Lots of we don't hear almost anything about the KLPGA. It's an extremely healthy, extremely competitive tour, and as you've just pointed out, a player like Sung Hyun Park can arrive on the LPGA and be a revelation to all of us. Whereas people in Korea are saying, "Well, why are you surprised? She's won already what eight or nine times? I think she'd won in the KLPGA before she went to yeah. America to the LPGA." How many Sung Hyun Parks are there in Korea? Well, I can uh, I can name you know, there's two or three of them, but uh, already coming through. But Sung Hyun was. Unique. I mean, athletic body and rip the ball. I mean, extraordinary golfer. What a pleasure to watch. No idea how to play golf at times, but what an extraordinary ability to hit the ball. (laughs) Well, funnily enough, what she needs, Dean, is a good caddy that she'll listen to. I think a player like her uh, is that that that's that's the the key to the get to the next level is to learn how to play golf. Yeah, Sanyun Sanyun's got a wonderful caddy on the bag right now, David Jones. But not not only that, David's a Hell of a player himself in Ireland, a top amateur player. Um, he played in the, um, uh, the same amateur team as uh, Graham. Um, uh, what's what's his name? Graham yeah. won the U.S. Open. Yeah. I don't think of his name, but um, he, uh, yeah, David himself is a top amateur player, and, um, and now he's and David's been uh, caddying now for uh, well over probably ten years now. But he's giving her wonderful uh, advice right now. And he's playing. As he plays the LPGA Tour. Um, uh, there's a lot of them coming through, mate. There's a there's the next wave. Uh, a girl called He Jung Lim. Uh, so, uh, hang on, are, they, are, they, are these the names that we'll be saying in three years as listeners to the thing about golf? Heard it here first. <laughs> Basically, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I, mean, I, I, I would even go to say two years. Okay, within he, two years. He Jung Lim. Uh, you got He He Jung Lim. Yep. If anybody uh, wants to uh, watch a copybook golf swing, uh, check out He Jung Lim on the on YouTube. Uh, Minji Park, Hyun uh, Kum Park, she's a, a wonderful player too. And there's this massive big hitter, a young girl from Jeju called Hei Run Ru, and um, absolute bombs at a mile. And 
can, I mean, these girls are having amazing seasons this year. Um, t- t- uh, two of those girls, He Jung and uh, Minji, uh, had their rookie seasons last year. But here's the connection with Australia, Rod, uh, with those two players. But, but He Jung, Minji, and, uh, and uh, Hey Run, they all came down to Australia to play the Australian Amateur Championships. So the, these Korean girls are qu- quite familiar with Australia. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we've always, that's why we've always had a good connection with Australia. And, uh, um, with the Korean players, they 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 all love Australia and um, they they enjoy the environment. They love the golf courses more than anything. And uh, the um, but yeah, as I said, the, the the Golf Australia are doing a wonderful job there with the relations between the K, K, KGA, the Korean Golf Association, and mm-hmm. so therefore you know these younger 15, 14, uh, 14, 15, 16 year olds, seventeen year olds are all coming down at their early age to get that experience and play Australia. So which is great. The the thing that interests me the most about that. Dean is that there seems to be yeah, stereotyping is a dangerous thing, obviously. But the number of I think of NG Chun at um, Royal Adelaide, a couple, not Royal Adelaide. Uh, where did she win the Australian? Was it the Grange in South Australia? That uh, yes, you're, you're talking about uh, Jin Young Ko. Oh, sorry, Jin Young Ko. Sorry, yeah, it's not NG Chun. Yeah. They get it. So it's a it's a completely different type of golf to what they're exposed to. I would imagine. Maybe you can set me straight on that. What are, what they are exposed to, I would imagine, week in and week out. Certainly in America and probably in Korea. But there seems to be at the very top level amongst the Korean players an innate understanding, which I think Ga Shin had as well. By winning a British Open, you sort of prove that, don't you? An innate understanding of how the game, whatever that that course happens, to demand. Am I right about that? Do you think? And is is that yeah, not a Korean correct. thing? That's just a good golfer thing, perhaps. Correct. I'd say 15 years ago, the Korean players coming out were just, you know, machines. They, they weren't thinking much and, you know, they, they, they were straight off the driving range. Those, you know, three-story driving range uh, platform places, that, you know, and then go to play a golf course because they didn't – golf course still quite expensive in Korea uh, as it is in Japan. And um, so they didn't get to play the course that many times, you know. And um, But the that type of player was around now the the parents have woken up to the fact of these of these young girls that they they're pushing them out to play in different countries to go mm-hmm. what they call winter training uh winter training is that that two or three months uh that you know to go practice during the off season and you know the 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 big thing in here in Korea is that a lot of the golf coaches here take big groups away for their winter training and a lot of them consist of 15 maybe 10 to 15 tour players in that group so they're off to play in the United States two or three months, or might be in Hawaii, and then all of a sudden down to Australia or New Zealand. So, uh, um, but the, the last fifteen years, I would say the the Korean KLPGA players uh, have realised the benefit of actually getting out during that winter training and that off season, and get, getting out to, to. And a lot of them sometimes head to Australia because the firm conditions and. Golf courses are different, and you know, um, just the different style of golf. It's, it's so one of the, the it's one of the which diffi- makes them aware to it. Yeah, it's one of the difficult lessons of golf, isn't it? And particularly, the better a player you are, is that there is much more to success than just being able to hit the ball. There are, in fact, thousands of people who can hit the ball well, but doesn't mean that you'll be good at golf. That other element is mm. crucial, isn't it? Oh, huge, huge. And another factor I'll kick in there too, as well, right, is the teaching in Korea has not improved so much in the last 15 years. Um, a lot of young uh, Koreans went off to the US or went off to uh, either Australia. Um, one of the top coaches here uh, used to work with Aussie Moore on the Gold Coast. Okay. Uh, Siwoo, his name is. Um, Siwoo, uh, Siwoo, I can't remember his last name, but anyway, he, he worked with Aussie uh, on the Gold Coast. And, uh, you know, he, he, all of 
all of a sudden came back to Korea with a few of his new ideas as well and really studied up. And the coaching itself in Korea is, has, has taken a, a huge leap. And, uh, and it, it's, it's, it's wonderful now. Some of the, even though some of the Japanese players are now looking at uh, getting uh, coached by Korean coaches, you know, on the, from the Japanese tour and the, the women's side of things anyway. And uh, that I know of. You would have seen a lot of changes in the women's game and the way the world and the golf world reacts to women's golf. Have you? Is that right? Have you seen those changes? And what, what do you make of the state of golf and its relationship with women and women's golf in this day and age? Oh, I'll tell you what, 20, the last 20 years I've just seen a massive – the Koreans have raised the bar. It's just it's, 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 the quality, I mean, the ball striking and uh, – it, it, Koreans have just taken it through the roof. They basically, have it. You know, but back in the day, it uh, women's golf. Not not many people. You know, we followed it. Yeah, you know, we had our Jan Stevens. We had a Nancy Lopez and all that stuff. And I, I, I followed it. American the LPJ stuff now, but the the, the 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 Korean the quality of golf now is unbelievable. I mean, um, even I was talking to uh, Nancy Scranton one time many years ago. Nancy, former LPGA player. And, um, and Nancy's retired now, but she came and did some TV work one week or uh, there was some reason she was at the A&A tournament and got um, talking away and she goes, oh, my God, she says, if I played now, I would never have made the cut. <laughs> and uh, she said she would have had so many weekends off. But now these Koreans have just taken the, the sport to a way, way new level. And um, Anyone who makes the effort to go out and watch women's professional golf, I think for the most part golfers come away surprised exactly as you say, just how good they are and the depth yeah. is probably what's really changed. You always had a top handful of players, didn't you? The top players could always play. Yes. But the depth yes. now in the entire field, the, exactly. The, the, there's no there's no bottom third of the field that has no chance to win. That's not the case anymore for the most part in women's golf where it probably was true, as you say, 10 or 15 years ago. The other thing I really love, Rod, the other thing I really love about women's, the, the women's sports, they, they promote the sport yeah, really well. Yeah, very much, yeah. Um, you know, the, the women are so pleasant to the gallery. I'm not saying that, you know, the men are, you know, nasty or whatever, and that, but I'm just saying there's that, you know, that male, female, sometimes the male arrogance Shows. Do you reckon that's as much about <laughs> money as anything, though, Dean? The women realise that they need to work harder to get half of the sponsorship dollars attracted to the sport. I think if you go back to what we look on in many ways, oh, a lot of the time as a sort of a golden era when you had the great triumvirate of player, Palmer and Nicholas, and they used to come here to Australia on a regular basis and play the Australian Open, much of that was actually to do with money. Modern players, which is no knock on it, but McElroy and Woods and um, Spieth and Kepka, they don't need to come to Australia because they don't need the money. I wonder what part that yeah, plays in. I agree with your assessment about women's golf and all of the women's tournaments I've been to, the players do tend to be much more open and giving than what you see in men's golf. But I wonder how much of that is to do with just the financial realities. You've got to work harder for, well, not even the same outcome. Great point. Great point. Um, it's, uh, But I do, I have found after hanging around, you know, both, both sides. Uh, you know, the, over the years, uh, I can honestly say most, a lot of the women genuinely, genuinely do it. They see that it's that it's that mother figure. You know, they see a kid on the, mm-hmm. they see a kid on the edge of the putting green, and you know, they'll go over and talk to him. You know, nicer they, people they than us, Dean. That's what you're saying. Women are nicer people Sorry? than us. Blo- women are nicer people than us blokes. 
A couple of points here. We'll start to wrap it up. I've just had a, had a look at the time. There's a couple of points you wanted to chat about in particular or issues that you think are particularly important in golf. So this probably touches on one of those. The first one you mentioned, stop promoting the prize money in pro events. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Yeah, mate, I'm a little bit anti. I think tennis made the decision 10, 12 years ago, I remember, you know, just to cut out the, you know, promoting the hell out of the, you know, making prize money such a big aspect of uh, of tennis, and um, if you notice, they they tried, they do try to hide it. They don't try and it's not out there on the poster, you know, you know, splashed, you know, twenty million dollars this week, or you know, fifteen million dollars, whatever this week. They're, they're trying to take, you know, they're taking the, uh, they're promoting the, uh, the the tournament name more than what they are the prize money. But I just find golf, um, it's it disappoints me in a lot of ways where we're using golf, uh, using money to promote golf, you know, to to get people's interests. Our oh, first prize money is this. And, you know, the total prize money is that. And it doesn't work either, get, does it? This week we'll no, see the finale of the FedEx Cup and no golf fan cares and no golf fan believes that Dustin Johnson will feel any more pressure over a putt on the 8th for $15 million versus two. Because let's be frank, it's just another $15 million. That's the truth of it. Dead right. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's, a, it's worn out. I think it's been overused. Mm. And, you know, you've got to relate back to, you remember the, tennis tournament the gold tennis record you know john newcomb played against McEnroe or whatever it was years ago um one million dollar challenge well that was huge then you know okay great you know but now it's just so much money being thrown around golf now we really don't need to promote you know stop you know it's this it's this thing that if i look at the pga tour now uh, and it's this thing that fincham has brought in over the last 25 years and you know, tournaments competing against each other. It's so frustrating, um, and it, I think it needs to be nipped in the butt. I think tournaments now they just just need to promote its name. Yeah. Um, I just think uh, a big big thing that hit hit me in the face more than anything. I think it was like uh, uh, Rafa Nadal won the U.S. Open, and um, J.P. Morgan, I think it is, uh, who sponsored the U.S. Open tennis, and which is currently going on this weekend. And, but I I um, I, know, I remember when after he won it. And they're handing over the the, the the woman announcer for NBC or whatever. She and three point five million dollars, you know. And and the camera was on Rafa. And you know, here's a guy that had simple upbringings and does so much for charities. And you know, you could tell you could tell he had hairs probably, you know, just a twinge in the body language he gave when she mentioned it. It made him feel uncomfortable, you know. Mm-hmm. And because there was so much prize money when the, his actual passion is to try and win a tennis tournament. And I really – I just think society now, doesn't, we don't, really don't need to hear no, it. No, it's because kind of tasteless and crass and – It is tasteless. That's the word I'm looking yeah. for. Prize money in the women's LPGA golf is wrong. What's wrong yeah, with it? Uh, not enough? I, too much? I, I, poorly spread out? It's No, it's just the way it's structured. I, I, no, not, not too much. Uh, no, the total, you know, it could probably be a little bit more, whatever, but that's just the structure structure of the prize money breakdown um i think uh it, for, there's a difference between pga tour and lpga mm-hmm. obviously the money yes what a lot of people don't realize is that the lpga over the last 15 years has lost a lot of support sponsorship from golf companies to the players directly yep. um golf companies used to support and sponsor players on the lpga tour a lot and now the golf companies are just going straight to PGA Tour because that's the one with the TV ratings and uh, that's all we care about. So the girls basically, something you're only talking about maybe 30%, 40% of the girls out there are getting supported just by a golf company, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so uh, very, very small money in, in sponsorship support um, and they're out there battling away at their own, you know, 
with basically with their own money most of the time. So I look at golf, and it's been so obvious to me, uh, Rod, over the last probably five years, that maybe the prize money of golf has been stru- structured wrong from the from the get go. You know, from 50 years ago when the PGA of America or whatever started, or you know, whatever the tour started. And I started thinking about it, and um, you know, it's just what's happened on the LPGA tour has made it more obvious where the girls are really, really struggling. And, you know, there's only basically 60 girls, 50 girls out there making money each week. I know that because, you know, you're just looking at the, you know, the traveling they've got to do. There's a lot of tournaments that actually support the girls and actually pay for their air tickets and stuff. For example, the Australian Open and that to get the girls out there such a long distance away. Um, but the problem is the, the, I think the big core of the, the problem is, is uh, you've got too much of a have and have not situation on the LPGA tour. You've got a girl that's going to win two and a half million, and then you've got a hundredth place. The girl that's playing is number one hundred or number ninety. They're making just over a hundred thousand um, dollars. And when you add up all the expenses, if you're playing thirty tournaments and it's three and a half, four grand a week to survive on tour, that adds up to about a hundred to hundred and twenty thousand dollars in your expenses. So. My idea would be to start structuring the prize money from the bottom up instead of from the top down. Um, basically Good Lord, man. Are you some sort money. of communist? <laughs> hey. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so it, 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 the problem is what's happened, what I've seen, Rod, is professional golf used to be a five-year process to stay on tour and be able to stay on tour, you know. Um, you get a girl that's running 80th, you know, 70th, 80th, okay, they're trying to work their way up the system. Right now, it's very, very short. Girls are only lasting two years and they're out of it. You know, they're done, you know, uh, because they can't afford it or, you know, they can't work their way through. Um, I've just found that, I just found that any business, you know, you've got to, the basic of what I'm trying to say is you've got a player from Monday to Friday have paid their own expenses to just try and make the cut. Now, last prize money should not should not be just to break even. You should be making so I think the LP- more than even. Yeah, yeah, the LPGA purses, I'm pretty sure. So the men's pay 18%, I think, to first place, and then it falls away very quickly. I think it's about half that for second place, and then it goes down. I think the is the LPGA 20%, if I'm not mistaken, rather than 18? Uh, it, no, it comes, it comes down. It fluctuates. Yeah. Uh, and then you've got that CME event at the end of the year that's, you know, yeah. out of aren't you, know, a lot of prize money there. But Aren't you speaking just against competition there, though? Dean, you've been a player. Everybody starts, even par, except for this week of the Tour Championship, mm. of course, where we have a handicap yeah. event, which is just fantastic to see the, the guys going back to their roots and a bit of amateur golf and uh, getting a bit of a head start if you've if you've played well last week. I never, don't know when that became mm. part of a professional golf, but isn't that what competition is? Everybody starts. Yeah, with but I just think it, nothing just, and the initial structure. You know, you got you got a player going out on tour. Uh, as I said, that from Monday to Friday, it, you know, professional players, mm. professionals don't make prize money up. Until, no. you know, until they make the cut. Until they're Sunday, that's right. So it's this constant, you know, like constant, you know, making zero. Uh, okay, you missed the cut. It's fair, you know, whatever. You know, you're not playing very well. You know, but at least when you make the cut, make it rewarding. You know, make it. And I'm not, I'm not saying it's going to make the player softer. It's actually because there's so many things attached to a player. Um, and I guess looking at it from my perspective as a caddy, that you, you, you know, you want to make sure you, but you, you get paid, but it feeds down the line because yeah. what's happening, I've found more than anything is that the caddies also, it's a have not, have and have not situation. 
uh, as well. You know, you've you, you either got a caddy that's making, you know, $200,000 or the, you know, a guy that's, you know, and another caddy just, you know, making nothing, you know. Uh, so it's, um, I, again, I, yeah, I agree. But I think a player should not walk away from the game totally broke, you know. Like, I mean, it, it, there's enough rankings out there for the qualification to get through. You know I mean, that, that player's going to get through. Yeah. Uh, um, and be able to be competing and, and compete on to next year. And if they, but financially, you know, it's, it, it, the player shouldn't be walking away from the, they should be rewarded more, you know, by making the cart, you know. It's, a, it's an interesting uh, discussion. It doesn't make the player softer and, you know, uh, sure, you know, just go out there and play better golf. You know, that's very easy to say. But I just think have a look hard at the structure of the breakdown and I think um, I think it'll it, – it, it, would, it would kind of – there's a um, – the reason I relate it to LPGA is that, you know, the theme of what I've woken up to over the last, you know, 30 years of caddying and whatever it was, 27 years, the – there's a big difference between the male and female, you know, and um, the, the, the female pressure is way higher. And there's been a lot of sad stories over the over the years in out of LPGA, and um, the, the women are more definitely more emotional uh, about when it comes down to you know to money and pressure, and uh, you know now you're bringing uh, it, it's, it gets to you know depression and a lot of this, a lot of aspects. They're they're constantly the LPGA are monitoring a lot of uh, depression that goes on and amongst the tour, they're watching players and. You know, and uh, talking to a lot of players, I know there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, negative negativity out there, and it's it's really tough. You know, the, the women uh, struggle to handle it. You know, but the men, it doesn't matter. They're making millions. It's fine. We're going to go on to next week. No big deal. The the women are. Uh, it's it's a different kettle of fish, and you know the the, the tour structure is different. Everything's different. Um, it's the LPGA is the only tour that has to pay for their television. Yeah, that's um, right. Yeah. You know, it's five hundred thousand a week. Yeah, that's hard, isn't it? Uh, out of the budget, but, uh, but I think that it, to make it look that little friendlier and uh, just reward a player mm. better after making the cut. You're going to meet some resistance to that argument, and some of it might even come from me. But I do think it's a very interesting discussion. That at what point mm. does the organisation have a responsibility to the players beyond just organising the event and let the chips fall where they may? But there's, uh, there's mm. probably a whole episode in that. At some point. Dean, been great to catch up, mate. Thanks for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Rob. All the best, mate. So much to take in there from that chat with Dean Hurden, and I hope that you enjoyed it. Well, even half as much as I did would be a good result. Now, for our next episode, we're going to meet someone who challenges an old cliche. Those who can do, says the accepted wisdom, and those who can't teach. But what if you happen to be really good at both? Well, find out on episode 28 when we meet two-time Australian Masters champion and coach of the moment, Brad Hughes. That's next time on The Thing About Golf. Golf.